If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to just read the first seven verses this morning. A small portion of Scripture, massive, massive implications. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I never do well with sermon titles, and I kind of got it wrong. I called it the Theater of Redemption Act 1. It's actually the Theater of Redemption Act 3. Uh, Act 1 of the Theater of Redemption is the creation of that theater. And that's described in Genesis 1, where God creates this incredible habitat for humanity. He creates the heavens. He creates the earth. He creates the, uh, the things that fly above, the things that walk upon, the things that swim beneath. And it's a particular focus because he has created a world in which he will display his wonderful redemption. In chapter 2 of Genesis, which we might call Act 2 of this play that is worked out in the theater of redemption, God places on the front stage the two primary characters which will develop into all of humanity, Adam and Eve. And in Adam and Eve, we see the focal point, the, the main characters in this act or this theater of redemption. And then in chapter three, we have the longest scene in the whole play, the fall of man and the actual work of redemption in bringing man and woman back to himself. So this is where we are really, is act three of this drama of redemption that's worked out in this theater, this world that God has made for us. As we saw last week, the Bible doesn't identify the serpent for us. We need to go to the end of the book, end of the Bible, to see that in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 12 identifies clearly who this serpent was. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Devil is real, Satan is real. And his work is real. Most of us here today, and certainly in North America, live in a world shaped by modern science. And we have little awareness of Satan and the demonic forces of our world. We discount them. We say those are something of non-modern people, those realities. While other cultures, on the other hand, who live in different places of the world in which we um, share with them, live with this profound and daily awareness of demonic reality. How can you have two different realities? 
Secular people, write John Piper, will attribute this difference largely to the fact that demons are not real and to the belief that more primitive peoples are still in the illusion of pre-scientific explanations of reality. But he goes on to write, he says, a more biblical explanation for this modern obliviousness to demonic reality is that Satan is by nature a deceiver. And he uses different deceptions to get modern and non-modern cultures to fall in with his designs. As we saw, Revelation 12.9 is very clear. Satan is the deceiver of the nations, of the whole world, not just the modern world, but also the non-modern world. In non-modern cultures, his shrewdness plays on people's true awareness of reality and controls them by fear. In modern cultures, he holds people in his sway incognito, happy with their disbelief in his reality. He leads them by the illusion that their deification of self is an experience of autonomy and freedom when in fact they are in perfect sync with his desires. Satan is easily capable of deceiving the modern and the non-modern mind. This snake is definitely out of place in the garden. We talked about that last week. He is definitely out of place in this garden which has been declared very good by God's word. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, though, I believe, is a harbinger of what has already invaded the spiritual realm. And in these few words that we're going to look at this morning, we get a glimpse of why humanity is the way it is. We get a glimpse of why the world is as it is. And it begins with a conversation between a snake and a woman. What the Bible doesn't tell us, and we are trying to find answers to these sort of things, is we don't know how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden in a state of perfection before they were tempted by this snake, which was Satan. It would seem, at least in my mind, that the assault came fairly soon after they had been created and given the command simply because they could not have had or even conceived of Cain and evil until the fall had taken place. So it appears to me, at least, that the assault of Satan on them occurred fairly soon after their creation and setting in the garden. It begins with these simple words, did God actually say? Those are profound words. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. As I said last week, a talking snake should have created an awareness immediately in Eve. None of the animals of the garden spoke. Why is this serpent? And we said last week that it, before it is a serpent that we understand, something that slithers around, it was probably an upright creature's magnificent, dragon-like, reptile-like, this creature of beauty and awe. But it still spoke. And something else is off in this particular interaction between the snake and Eve. Why is it an interaction between Eve and the snake and not Adam and the snake? Which, of course, then raises all kinds of questions in our minds. And because none of them are mentioned in the Bible, I hesitate to even get your heads thinking that way. And because none of them are answered in the Bible, then it's even more dangerous sometimes to ask these sorts of questions. But at the very least, something is not right. Right? 
Where is Adam? Why is Adam not the focal point of this conversation? The account is further illustrative of the deception of Satan and the suspicion of God that he weaves and the error of Eve's response to him. And it begins with this word of doubt. Did God actually say? This is the very first question in all of the Bible. It's his opening salvo in this interaction, and it's probably one of the most monstrous suggestions that anybody can put into the mind of another person. The very first thing that Satan attacks, though, before even the word of God, is the person of God himself. It's subtle, but it's significant. Remember I mentioned that at chapter uh, 2, verse 4, the name of God changes. In Genesis chapter 1, it's Elohim. It's a word, it's a name for God which um, points to his majestic power, his transcendence, his separateness from creation, so to speak. When you come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it is now Yahweh Elohim. And that is the personal name for God. That is the relational name for God. That is the name that God reveals to his people, that he will be close with them, that he will walk with them, that he will be in covenant with them. And what happens when you get to Genesis chapter 3 is Satan twists that now and he reverts back to simply Elohim. And Eve does nothing about that reversion. She simply follows him in speaking about God now that is somewhat distant, somewhat removed, somewhat outside of a personal relationship with her. It's not by accident that he shifts the focus from a God that is near, from a God that is relational, from a God that walks with us and talks with us to a God that is distant, so to speak, a God that is powerful, a God that in some ways is unknown. And it's corrected when you get back to verse 8 of chapter 3, when again now the word that is used to describe God or name God is Yahweh Elohim. And it's Yahweh Elohim, the personal God that comes to the garden looking for Adam and Eve. Notice, though, that the very first doctrine, and there's many doctrines that are uh, unveiled in chapter 3, but the very first doctrine that Satan attacks is the word of God. The very word that spoke the heavens into existence. The very word that spoke the earth into existence. The very word that spoke blessing upon the relationship between Adam and Eve. The very word which spoke about the bountiful provision of God to them. A seed of doubt is placed in Eve's mind. Well, let me think about this. What did God actually say? Did I hear him correctly? What specifically did he say, really? Loved ones, I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is something that we face every single moment of our day. We haven't memorized the word of God, so sometimes we go by memory. Sometimes we go by the word of somebody else. But we ask ourselves sometimes when it comes to forgiveness, did God actually say that I was to forgive? What about all these other situations? What about this? What about that? Oh, God says forgive as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. Did God actually say, you shall not be angry? Well, but surely the circumstances justify it here. Did God say, be anxious for nothing? Well, but he didn't live when I lived. He doesn't know all the circumstances of my life. He doesn't know the things that raise those. So it's, yeah, it's be anxious for nothing, but there's a few exceptions along the way. 
The question is made worse by a deliberate twisting of what God had said. As the serpent says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? It's fascinating how subtle that twist is. Not only is the serpent casting doubt on the very word of God, the serpent is casting doubt on the goodness of God. Come on now, Eve, did God actually put a do not eat sign on all of the trees of the garden? Is he keeping something from you? I wonder if this was intended to get Eve to actually focus on the one thing that she wasn't supposed to do, as opposed to the many things that she was saying, eat freely of every tree. And rather than focusing on the bounty of God's provision, on the wonder of God's provision, on all that God had given to her, Satan drills down and says, well, look what God is withholding from you. There must be a reason that God is keeping this from you. And then Eve says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Again, I want to just keep throwing this out to you to think through, although there's no answer to it, but I don't think it's wrong to think about it. Where's Adam? Where's Adam when this conversation is taking place? It seems pretty clear that in one way or another, Eve is left on her own here. The original command had been spoken to Adam before Eve was ever even created. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, given him the command about the fact that they should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve had received that command secondhand. It had been Adam's duty and responsibility as the head to speak that to her and to explain it to her and talk with her about it and to recount it to her. If he was with her, why didn't he step in? Why didn't he take the lead? If they were both present, why did Eve respond, not Adam? But notice how her response is similar, but yet different from the command. He says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's her response. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But Genesis 2.16 says it differently. The Lord God commanded the man. This is not an optional invitation you may eat. This is a command of God to enjoy the provision of God, the bounty of God, all the gifts that God has given to, to be thankful for them and to take them at the word of God as it is for us. Enjoy all of his provision. And in fact, it says you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Eat of it all, all of it, Adam and Eve. But she doesn't repeat it that way. The certainty of God's provision the bounty of God's provision, the command of God to enjoy all of his provision, she has diminished somewhat. God said you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, not you may surely eat freely of all the trees in the garden. See, something is happening in her mind as she's re responding to the temptation in the words of the serpent. She muddles it. You shall eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. We could rightly ask, well, which tree's in the middle of the garden? Aren't there two? It's not a large point. It's actually quite subtle, but it's wise, unwise to deal with the Word of God loosely. Do we not do the same sometimes when we quote the Word of God? We leave out a and here, a but there, a for there, a portion of a sentence here or a verse there or a phrase as we quote the Word of God. 
But there's one specific tree that they were told not to eat of, not just a tree in the midst of the garden, but they were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was in the midst of the word of God. She blurred the precision of God. And then she adds to the word of God. Fascinating. She added to the word of God. She said, and neither shall you touch it. I don't really entirely know where that came from. But it was given possibly as an additional fence to the word of God, as, uh, as we know that the Jewish people added 613 commands to the Ten Commands, sort of as a fence to the law, so that you could break sort of those before you got to actually breaking the Ten Commandments. I wonder if by adding this, she's commenting on the strictness of God. Something in her head is saying, well, well God is really quite strict. He said you can't eat, but he said you can't even touch it. And we do that kind of thing. For example, an employer might call an employee into his office who's been late a bunch of times, and he needs to address this, he needs to deal with it. And so he, he might sit them down and, and say to them, in a general, kind, but maybe a bit of focused way, I think there's something that we need to give a little bit of attention to. It's important that you get to work on time. And then as that employee leaves and people ask, well, what did the boss say to him? And they say, well, you know what that guy said. I, I don't really like him that much. But he says, if I'm late again, I'm fired. It's often what kids do when their parents say that they can't do something. Then when they talk to their friends, they add something to it to make their parents seem a little bit more harsh or more strict. Lastly, she softened the word of God. Lest you die. When God had said clearly, you shall certainly die. She diminished it. She muddled it. She added to it. She softened to it. That's not the path of obedience. That's not the way God wants us to interact with his word. There's a danger when we take those things into our own approach to the word of God. There's many examples in the scripture of not taking the word of God precisely or not taking it seriously. David, when he brought the ark back to Jerusalem, rather than carrying it by poles, they put it on an ox cart, contrary to the word of God, and one man died trying to stabilize it. Two of Aaron's sons were in the uh, tabernacle offering offerings and they were killed in the very presence of God because they offered strange incense on the altar. In the New Testament, we find those that by their tradition nullify the word of God. It's what we tend to do when we're wrestling with the word of God. We, we sort of play fast and loose with it. We're, we're not really too um, concerned about being precise with it or being accurate with it. We, we play around with it. We manipulate it. We massage it to justify our actions or our decisions. And so with all of this in her mind, then the serpent comes back to her and with a bold-faced lie, says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. A blatant contradiction and lie. No, you will not die. This is what Jesus later describes to us about Satan's way with us and the tempter's way in our lives today. You are of your father to devil, speaking to some of the religious leaders, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. 
Here, the full character of Satan is on display with that simple phrase, no, you surely will not die. Notice here now, we, the, 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 the word of God has been challenged. The goodness of God has been challenged. And now the judgment of God is being challenged. You will surely not die. It's as though the serpent is saying to Eve, really, Eve, come on, think this through a little bit. Have you ever witnessed death yet? Is there even such a thing? Does it even exist? Would, would God really punish you so severely when he has given so much to, when he has made in his very image, would he really punish you so severely? Eve, it's only a piece of fruit. It's just a little piece of fruit, Eve. Do you think that you will die for eating a piece of fruit? And while it's a further attack on the word of God, you will surely die. It's also attack on the reality of the judgment of God. It's like he's saying, God's bluffing, Eve. He's not going to do that. He's a God of love. He's a God that's provided all this stuff for you. Nothing's going to happen. It's a lie that pervades the world in which we live today. This is one of the reasons why our world wants nothing to do with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you come face to face with a God of judgment. You come face to face with a God to whom we are accountable to. As the word of God said, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. In Acts 17, we are reminded very clearly that God has an appointed, he has fixed a day in which we will all appear before him. Whether we believe it or not, whether we accept it or not, God has clearly spoken and God shall surely follow through with that. He's a God that will judge our behaviors and our actions. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, this is another attack on the goodness of God. It's another attack on the character of God. It, we don't use the same language, but when we're tempted and we're tested sometimes and we're facing a situation, we kind of work in our heads, well, no, God's really kind of hiding something from me. God is withholding something from me. God is saying to me that, 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 that I shouldn't do this, but I think he's just doing that because he's mean or because he doesn't understand my circumstances or he doesn't know what's best for me. This is the danger of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It holds out a lie to us. And so Eve had come to the conclusion that this is exactly what God was doing. This is one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, I think, as I was working this through in my head. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The word temptation, it's a word play. Um, the word can mean both test or temptation. So God can't lead us into temptation. He doesn't tempt anyone. But God can lead us into tests, and he did, does lead us into tests. But what the prayer is asking us is as we pray to God, what, what the realization is, is, is it's, it's something like, God, don't allow me to succumb to the temptation of the evil one who wants to twist your test into me doubting your goodness. Because all that God tests us with, all that God puts for us is a demonstration of will we trust his goodness? Will we wait on his goodness? And Satan comes back and says, no, don't wait. No, no, God's holding something from you. And so in the Lord's Prayer, we say, lead us not into 
testing, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the lies of the evil one who gets us to besmirch God's goodness. The art of deception here is profound. This is what Satan just is so good at. He is the deceiver from the beginning. He is a deceiver of the whole world. And he spawns in us. He encourages in us. He can't make us, but he gets us to come to the place where we just don't believe anything God says. We don't believe in God's word any longer. We doubt it. We doubt the personal presence of God, the personal relationship of God. We, we can't imagine that, that there is such a God who would want a personal relationship with me. We doubt the goodness of God. We don't believe that God has our best interests in mind. We doubt the judgment of God. We say, no, there, God won't really do that. That's beyond God. That's, that's too much for God to follow through in judgment. And so we doubt the word of God. This is, this is a path, the, the descent, the, the sort of the art of deception. And then you can see it individually in Eve's head as she herself questions the word of God. She revises the word of God. She gets muddled over the word of God. She's, she detracts from the word of God. She adds to the word of God. She subtracts the word of God. Rather than simply falling on and believing on, it is written, as Jesus did when he was tempted by the devil. It was Eve's minimizing, revising, adding to, and softening of God's word that was the path to destruction. And it is the same for us today. Moses is writing to the people of Israel. And uh, at the beginning of the book, he commands them very clearly, just after he's given the ten's word, to be careful to do all that the Lord God had commanded them. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, when they are at the plains of Moab, as they're prepared to go into the land of Canaan, though, Moses then writes this. Take to heart all the words by which, God, uh, by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. That's true of the word of God today. It is our very life, it is what gives us joy, it is what gives us happiness, it is what gives us eternal life. It is, it, it all is bound up in the word of God. They are life to us. And then Jesus, when he is tempted by the evil one in the garden, he responds three times with the word of God. And you might recall what he said the very first time when Satan tempted him to turn the stones into bread. And do you remember what Jesus said? He answered them, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see what's happening there? The word of God is our very life. The word of God is our very food. Somehow we need to be brought to that again and again and again and again. That there is life in following God's word. And there is nourishment and sustenance in eating God's word. And then we have the descent. The descent is almost anticlimactic. We're talking here about something that is going to affect the whole cosmos. Affect every man and woman, boy and girl, ever born in the history of humankind. It's the fall of mankind. It's described with, with, with no fanfare. It's described with, with almost just sort of a, a stroke of the pen. Uh, 
so to speak. It's astonishing how quickly Adam and Eve succumb to the temptation of the serpent. Eve, there's no dialogue after this point. All we have is what's going on in her heart. All we see what's going on in her head. The, the argument has taken place. Something is now beginning to snap in her. She's played fast and loose with the word of God. She's begun to doubt many of the things about God. And, and it simply tells us then, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, that was, that's what was going on in her head. That's what was going on in her heart as she worked through this situation. And then all of a sudden, simply, she took of its fruit and ate. Astonishing. This one fruit now is the only fruit that she wants. All the other fruit of, on the trees in the garden were not enough for her. This is the one she wanted. And why not? Her justification is something every one of us have worked through in the course of our lives. Well, it looks good. You know, the, the motto, I can't remember if it was the 60s or the 70s, if it feels good, do it. If something was good for me, I don't care whether it's right or wrong. It's good, so I'm going to do it. And so she looked at the fruit of the tree, and practically speaking, she needed to eat. And so she said, it looks good to eat. It was a delight to her eyes. There was an aesthetic appeal to this fruit. Fruit has that. I mean, you, what do artists draw sometimes? They, they draw bowls of fruit. They're beautiful. The colors, the fuzzes, the shines. Um, uh, you, your mouth almost waters sometimes when you look at a, a well-drawn fruit. There's, there's this aesthetic beauty in it. And then it held out intellectual promise to her. There was something extra in this fruit. That if she ate it, she would all of a sudden become wise. The woman listened to the creature instead of the creator. She followed her instincts instead of his instructions. And she took of the fruit. Eve is the first woman in history to love the world. You find that when you read, for instance, 1 John 2.16. I, 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 although I wouldn't say they're exact comparisons, you, you take the temptations of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. You take the, the, the description of the world and its effect on us in 1 John uh, 2, verse 16, and you go back to Genesis 3, 6, and you compare them all, and there is a very close similarity between what they describe and how sin and temptation, or temptation and sin, enters into us. And it was all too much for Eve as she went through this process. She took the fruit and she ate. She had been deceived. In a blink of the eye, it's over. She exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed forever. One of the things that is clear throughout Scripture, Genesis 3.13, 1 Timothy 2.14, 2 Corinthians 11.3, is that Eve was deceived. The work of Satan on her was a work of deception. It was a simple act, and yet she fell for the lies of the evil one. 
What of Adam, though? It says she also gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Again, I, I don't know where Adam was all the time. I don't know if he was there the whole time. I don't know if he just showed up at the end. I don't know if she, he showed up while she's picking the tree. It doesn't tell us. It simply says that she turned and gave, or she also gave, see, there's, see how you add scripture? Shocking. <laughs> No, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. He does nothing to stop her. He does nothing to remind her of the word of God and the clear command of God. He was led instead of leading. He failed to do what God commanded. He failed to lead and protect his wife. If he had been present while the, spin it, the, the serpent was spinning his lies, should he have not killed the dragon and saved the girl? Shouldn't that have what, what Adam should have done for Eve? The reality is the scripture it places greater culpability on Adam than it does on Eve. And for all the male chauvinistic jokes that seem to attribute the fall of man to a woman, don't erase those. Adam is held culpable for the fall of humanity. The command of God had been clearly given to him before Eve had been created. He allowed his wife to eat the fruit with not warning her, not stopping her. Possibly he watched her eat it and there was no immediate consequence. So he thought, well, I guess that's okay, like you do with your little brother or little sister. But way more severe. And everything is turned upside down. Eve followed the snake. Adam followed Eve. And nobody followed God. We'll look at this next week, but when God approaches later in the garden, he calls out singularly, specifically to Adam. Not Adam and Eve, not Eve first, but to Adam. Adam, where are you? The Bible is clear that Adam was not deceived, Eve was. But the Bible is clear that in Adam, we all fall. That in Adam, we all die. The blame and the weight of the fall of humanity is placed on Adam, not on Eve. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sold fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. The pursuit of moral autonomy, their a quest for independence, their desire to be like God, had not resulted in an, in, into an ascent, but had actually been a descent. And while the fruit of that uh, tree was still on their lips, their eyes were opened, and sin pervaded their whole being. Much like if you have a glass of water, if I had a glass of water and dropped a single drop of blue or yellow or red within moments, the whole water would be red or blue, whichever I dropped in it. They were at once utterly sinful. And the universal reality is that we do what they did. We attempt to cover and hide our sin. They sold fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's an inevitable cover-up. 
Once we start to live life according to our own desires, we no longer can trust each other. There will be things in our lives that we don't want each other to know about. We don't quite trust one another any longer because we don't know what each would do if they knew all about us. The fig leaves in our lives take all different kinds of forms, not simply fig leaves that we pull off of a fig tree. We pretend what we are not. We are one thing to one person and another to another. We spin the truth to make ourselves presentable. We lock away our secrets. We clear the web browsing history on our web browser. We are less than candid about thousands of things in our lives. We dread embarrassment. We are private. And the need to be private is there because we have so much to blush about. The tragedy is that we all crave deep down inside for intimacy and for trust that allows us to be real with each other. There's a part of us that longs to be open and to find the kind of friendship with one another in which we can really be accepted as we are. But with sin in the world, it has become an elusive goal. I'm so thankful for the weekend that's coming. It will be a long way to Gethsemane from Eden. But we're going to quickly read and be reminded of another garden. And in this garden, one listened to God. In this garden, one followed God. It's fascinating to realize that how it's described of Eve, it simply says she took and ate. Do those words resonate with you anywhere else? the Lord's table. These are verbs of salvation. And what happened in the garden that killed us was transformed in Gethsemane at the cross when Jesus said to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. This is redemption. This is the theater of redemption. Over thousands of years, God worked towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who would overturn, the one who would crush, the one who would take the, taking, the eating and taking of destruction and give us an eating and taking of life. And so for all who are here today, if you have not yet found Christ, take and eat. This is his body, which is for you. This is his blood, which has been shed for you. All who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. Put your trust in Christ. Confess your faith in him. Realize that he alone can save you from the destruction of the curse in your own sins. Take and eat of his body. And for those of us who know Christ, we are reminded monthly, aren't we, at the Lord's table, that our life is bound up in the redemption that has been purchased for us in Jesus Christ. Oh, what a Savior. Father, we thank you for your word today and for this reminder. In some ways, I, I want to call it a horrible text. But in some ways, I think it's a beautiful text. Because through this text, we will be introduced to a God who is beyond our wildest imaginations we'll be introduced to a God who is mighty to save, 
we will be introduced to a God who uses evil for his glorious purposes. We will be introduced to a God who can show us his mercy and his grace, stun us with redemption. And so while it is a painful text, it opens up to us one of the most, the most beautiful story ever told, the story of the one who kills the dragon and saves the girl. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen.